All right. Well, welcome, everyone. We are in the third trimester, I guess, if you will, of our uh, St. Hurst Schools Month, this, this being the fourth year. So incredible to see this evolve the way that it has. And this is my second of the panels this year that I get a chance to participate in. And the title of this session is very broad when you hear just the title itself. It's External Influences on Our Mental Health. And I was joking with Evan this morning when I heard that title and remembered that I signed up for it because uh, I think there's so many things out there that we can consider external influences. Uh, it's funny when Evan first brought up the topic and brought up some of the examples, I said, that sounds more internal than external. Um, and I think the, the influences that we are around and what impacts us in our day to day is so different right now in 2023 than it was 15 years ago than it was maybe even 12 years ago and you think about the advent of you know the smartphone and how much technology has increased so when Evan was putting the list together for giving us some ideas of topical areas to discuss he included things like the media our family and friends uh, organizations and I think organizations include different industries and how different industries are now impacting us, media being one of them, um, identifying the positives and negatives of the, these external influences and what practices we can use to set ourselves up for success in our surroundings. And, you know, before going into having each of the different panelists introduce themselves and I'll, I'll give just their name and then they each can give a little little rundown of their background and, and their expertise and area and why this topic is important to them. I'll just start off by saying, you know, we, we, we same here, we go into colleges, we go into offices, we go into sports teams, and, and one of the areas of focus is K through 12s. And the ironic thing is for this session coming up, the last school I was just in, I won't give the name of the school because I don't want to out them, not that this, there's anything wrong with this, they were just being completely honest. And I sat down with the the elementary school principal, so Eric might appreciate this. And you know, she she just took an exhale because like the day was ending for her as far as at least the the kids in school were going. And she's like, Eric, I've not seen the behaviors that I'm seeing this year ever. <laughs> and you know, part of that's a little humorous. Part of it's a little bit scary. Part of the, the outcomes certainly are scary. Some of the things that we're seeing. But I think that's a microcosm and it's an indicative of where are these behaviors coming from? And I think some of the external uh, influences we're going to talk about on this on this on this panel are going to relate to how those external influences have both changed over time and also uh, use the term have accumulated over time. So with that as a background, we've got three uh, great guests that are going to lead this panel. And then obviously, if we have folks jump in. Uh, we'll be available to answer questions with them. Uh, so the first is Eric Blankenship, who is, I'm giving one little tidbit from each of them, and then I'll have them do a full introduction, Principal Stevens Elementary School. Uh, Dr. Karen Dudick Brannon, who is a speech language, language pathologist, and then Christina McBurry, uh, who is affectionately known as the Happy Principal. So, Eric, I'm going to kick it off to you to give a little bit more formal introduction of yourself, and then you can pass it off to the other two speakers from there. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's nice to be here. Uh, yeah, this is my first year as an elementary principal. Uh, I spent uh, 13 years as a, a high school, middle school educator, four years as a middle school administrator. Uh, so this is a, a, a piece being not only an educator, uh, a father of four, uh, one of which being a teenager. Uh, that is, It really speaks home to me because I, I've seen um, what so many of the external influences have, are causing in our society, especially with our youth uh, and, and with adults. Mm-hmm. And, and as adults, we've, we've learned so many uh, coping mechanisms and ways to manage and handle, but just the impact we have with youth. So I'd love to start diving in and, and talk about some of those things uh, um, as we go through uh, here with some of my experiences and just uh, different things that I've experienced with uh, youth and, and the influence of all the external things on their mental health. Great. Thank you. Uh, Christina, you want to take from there? Sure. Thank you. Um, So I'm Christina McBerry. I have been an educator for 28 years, uh, an administrator for, I don't know, 21 maybe. Um, Turnaround education, I thought, was my calling um, and now in uh, non-traditional education. Um, Co-mom to 10, lots of lived experience as it relates to mental health challenges. And, um, you know, as we talk about external influences, I really see our impact um, as it relates to our protective factors and how we can really balance the scales in a way that helps um, our students and our families um, be protected um, and to build their capacity to cope. Um, And that's where um, I get a lot of hope uh, in that as well. So very excited to engage in that today as well. Awesome. Thank you for that intro and 10 kids. Wow. Is what I'll say. Um, Evan, Evan right now tells me all the time how much he's struggling with just his one. So kudos to you. Um, And then Dr. Karen, if you want to take it from here. Yeah. So I spent the first part of my career as a speech pathologist. Um, So that was about 14 years. I was in the school systems and that was when I was also working on my doctorate in special ed. And I thought I was going to Um, originally do something in higher ed, but for the last um, five years or so, I have been full-time doing professional development for for people who are working on IEP teams. And and really my area has been language literacy and executive functioning. And so obviously the literacy piece, you know, we know why that's important, but when you're thinking about executive functioning and thinking about the planning, the self-regulation and the, the way that it impacts just globally, as well as just relationships. And um, really what I focus on now is helping helping teams work together, but not just thinking about K-12, thinking about how those skills can impact you all the way, you know, really into college. You know, I've had some people on my podcast that are, you know, focusing on, okay, this is what's going on when, when kids are getting to college after high school. And so just thinking about, again, kind of along the lines of protective factors, resilience, and building the the cognitive skills that help you do that. Awesome. So, you know, and I, I like to go into these sessions not prepared because I like to hear each presenter, each panelist give their background and kind of synthesize it as it's happening in real time. And, and, you know, my takeaway from hearing the three of you introduce yourselves is we're coming at this topic from three very different angles. If I add myself in there from four very different angles, um, administrator level, speech, speech pathologist in schools, who's now doing work with executive functioning and has her own podcast and 
you know, Christina, all your work and all the lived experience that you've been through transitioning out from the traditional role in schools. And so because we have three and four, again, including myself in there, different angles, I'll start with, I guess it's a softball question, as long as whoever I ask second, third or fourth doesn't feel like the first person took their answer, then it's not that difficult a question. But but with this topic being external factors, uh, my, my question for you is, we could name a lot of external factors out there that impact our mental health, whether we're talking about students and kids or whether we're talking about adults and teachers and even parents. But what would you say, Eric, I'll start with you since, since you introduced yourself first and went out on a limb there. What would you say is the biggest external factor that you have seen changed in the last couple of years that because of how much it's changed has caused a difficult adjustment that has impacted mental health. All right. So I'll, I'll go with just one of the big things that I, I see just my, most of my experience as an administrator has been in middle school level. Mm -hmm. And I, I like to think back. So, you know, I grew up in the nineties, um, aging myself a little bit here, but you know, think about middle school, everyone does something in middle school that, you know, was, was embarrassing. You did something that, uh, those are a, a pivotal time as you, as a child, as you're, you're, you're developing as a human and thing is middle schoolers sometimes can be mean i mean that's always been and but back in the 90s you did something goofy it, it was the talk of the school for a couple of days mm -hmm. uh so now what we're dealing with is basically every middle schooler especially when you get the older they get has a cell phone and access to endless amounts of social media so a kid does something they're embarrassed of um well, the thing is, it gets snapped and it, and it becomes a viral meme. So it's it, or it's on Snapchat, Twitter, um, Instagram, whatever, what, whatever resource. Um, so the thing is that they can't. You, it doesn't move on as quickly, so they have to keep reliving and it, and it spreads to a broader level. Um, so just in a time that's already difficult for kids to mentally regulate when they're 12 years old, uh, dealing with things going on in life. Well, now things are put out there to a broader audience. And then also just, they have to constantly relive that event um, more so than what they have in the past. And, and I'll, you know, I'll add to that, Eric, before we go on to Christine and take hers, because we'll, we'll put that, we'll, we'll summarize that and say, okay, social media is one of the biggest external factor changes than what, we, what we've seen. You talk about an event or a moment that happens in middle school that when we were younger, 80s, 90s, whenever we each grew up, um, you know, stayed with us for a number of days and then went away because social media wasn't around. I'm seeing with social media that it's not even an event anymore that someone is partaking in or making a fool out of themselves for. It's a, I'm using the air quotes, friend or someone maybe friend of me or someone who wants to take that person down who's creating something i mean there there are memes that get created right now there are snap snapchat chats but snapshots that could get taken which is putting someone through the digital world in a compromising situation that's a fabricated message that isn't even real right so you've got the added pressure of it's not only just what you're doing and how that gets caught on and how that gets shared it has to do with someone making a decision that okay, I'm going to take a picture of you and now I'm going to alter that picture. I'm going to doctor that picture. I'm going to doctor that video in some way to embarrass you. And so you, you don't even have a safe haven because even if you are on quote your best behavior and you're doing everything you can to avoid 
you know, being someone who's caught on tape, caught on film, caught on video, caught on, on, a, on a picture in any way, you, doesn't mean you're skating. If someone wants to get you, they get, a, they get a chance to get you. So certainly one of the biggest factors and one of the ones that I thought would be taken. So that makes things a little more difficult on Christina and Dr. Karen here. So Christina, we'll go to you next. You've got the next factor that, uh, that you've seen that's changed the most in recent years. Well, I think that um, although you're right, um, social media has had a huge impact. I think that we've always found ways like, you know, we would pass notes back in the day um, and technology is always going to change. And that's always going to be something that we're going to use as a tool. I think I think we might have lost you there for a sec, Christina. I've had a difficult time with connecting with families, with uh, other educators, whether it was virtually or not independent of social media in a way that was really meaningful uh, and in a way that really helped us feel fulfilled. And so we're still recovering from that, um, whether it's being connected to nature, whether it's being connected to um, others, whether it's even being connected in some way that is purposeful. Um, and so I think that just connectedness in general is something that we're really trying to get back to a sense of normalcy. Got it. And Christina, you cut out a little bit there, but I think I'm piecing together what you said from the last piece of it, which is the connectedness that we've lost. Is that are you saying that the what what the event that caused that was was COVID and what we went through for those two and a half years? Yeah. Got it. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's just cutting out a little bit. So I just want to make sure. I so 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 far we've got the advent of social media and or the ramp up and or the skill set of people being able to use social media as one category. And yes, Christina, your point is not all negative, but you know this this first question is about what are the factors that we're seeing that external factors that are impacting it. So we certainly certainly can turn it around and talk about some of the positive factors of each of these things as well. Christina talked about COVID leading to a lack of connectedness um, and then a lack of connectedness, not only to one another, but to things like nature, to getting out in green settings and, and feeling at one with the earth. Um, so Dr. Karen, what, what are you going to pick? And then I'll go last and I will pick one just so that I'm, I'm on the hot seat as well. Well, I think that I could take both of what Eric and Christina said and, and, just as far as the the lack of connectedness and not just social media but all digital tools there's a lot of tools available to kids now there's online gaming there's youtube there's other things that are taking kids attention and they're offering this immediate gratification and you know kids with certain mental health conditions um if i could use you know adhd for example you do have a tendency to to go and gravitate towards things that, that offer that immediate gratification. And it's so tempting and difficult to resist that. It's very hard for kids. And as a result, they're avoiding things that are allowing them to build genuine connections and learn social skills and build some of these cognitive skills that we learned as kids just playing around the neighborhood outside. And so because they're not getting those interactions, they're not building the skills, they're not feeling confident in those situations because they're avoiding the situations that are going to make them feel better about themselves. And so it's, I mean, I think when we think about, you know, is it 
would it make me feel better to call someone and have a genuine conversation and set up a get together with a friend versus just scrolling YouTube, but which one is easier and seems in the moment um, easier to do and offers that immediate gratification. And so there's a lot of those things that are available. And I think it is harder for parents and educators to work with those things and understand how to set appropriate boundaries so that we're steering kids in the direction towards things that are going to, in the long term, make them feel better, make them help them build skills, confidence, and really get that long-term gratification. Great. So I'm going to, I'm going to paraphrase that one and say, as a build off of the previous two responses, outside of social media alone, you're talking digital media generally, and all the options that kids have that parents then have to manage because kids have, because many of us did not grow up with those options, though we partake in them right now. But what it's prevented is kids naturally getting together. Obviously, the example that you hear so often is when we were younger, when school ended, someone would throw a ball out in the middle of the street. We'd all go play, whether it was roller hockey, whether it was basketball, whether it was touch football, whether it was tag, whether it was spud, whatever different <laughs> different uh, games there were that each town had that each of us grew up in. You kind of found your role socially with others and you found a way to connect because you didn't have something to just sit in front of you and sit down and be alone and in isolation and not really be able to interact with others. And, 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 and something distracted you in that way. I will add to that a fourth one, and maybe it's a polarizing one, but it's, it's meant to be a polarizing one because it polarizes us. And I've seen it sadly uh, with my nieces. I've seen it in schools that we visit. And that is, you know, uh, Eric talked about social media. I'm going to talk about how traditional media seems to be a tool for divisiveness now, more so than it ever was even when we grew up. And that doesn't mean that there weren't sides that were taken when we grew up. But I think that there was a greater attempt and effort to try to be neutral, to try to be unbiased, to try to deliver the news as news. And so... Why does that impact our kids from an external factor perspective? Because I think with the way that traditional media has become so polarized, you're right, you're left, you're red, you're blue. Um, it's, it's, it, the, the polarization of parents has bled into how kids see things now. I've had parents tell me things like even in school, there, are, there have been teacher conferences where teachers will ask the, the, the parents during a te- parent-teacher conference, almost in a veil type of way, here are some answers you can select, red or blue, and it's almost like it's bleeding into the schoolroom um, and the classroom the way that it's come from the way that the media has, has portrayed it. And, and, you know, this is not a, a, a panel to talk about a dive into media specifically, so we don't need to go there. But I think as media has become more and more fragmented, where it's no longer, okay, you've only got four or five main network options. And so you turn on the TV and if you want to get your news, you got, you know, CBS, NBC, ABC, maybe one or two others. There's so many cable outlets now and there's so many streaming outlets now and there's so many digital outlets now that the way to stay afloat is is by taking a side. And I think that puts kids in a difficult situation because they watch the way that their parents are interacting with other parents, whether it's you know, over the phone and they hear the conversations happening or whether they're hearing two parents who don't agree with something in the same household and they're hearing it at the dinner table. 
Um, they're hearing it when they go out with their parents. And so it's a natural thing for kids to watch that and to pick up on that. And I think that makes it, you know, it's a factor that builds off the three factors that you all just brought up because of how difficult connection is right now. It's almost like the only way that kids can connect is by finding people in their tribe, right? And that, and that term in and of itself is a polarizing term. And so people have similarities to them, but where are those similarities coming from? If it's often driven by what your parents' beliefs are based on what a media is driving in terms of divide, it makes it difficult. I can't remember when I went to school thinking in a political spectrum that, you know, again, speaking of Eric dating himself, you know, whether someone voted for Ronald Reagan versus, you know, George Bush versus versus, you know, Bill Clinton, you know, is that someone in the class I couldn't be friends with because that family or that child through that family, you know, uh, uh, supported a certain candidate or felt a certain way. So I think that's an added pressure to kids right now that that is, has made things really difficult. OK, so now that we've got four factors uh, I think the next question is, from a behavioral perspective, what are you all seeing? Like, what what are you seeing that is different, enhanced, maximized, unique versus what you've seen in previous years? And we'll, we'll go back to you, Eric, because because let's be honest, the discomfort and the emotional pain that comes from a lot of these factors is then what brings about a lot of these behaviors that we're witnessing. Yeah, I actually go with uh, kind of what with Christina, what she was saying with um, the the students not learning just with the COVID time, especially. And now students have the ability to hibernate within themselves and just use social media. Uh, those social interactions have decreased. And so we're seeing an uptick in some of the craziest behaviors. You talk to any administrator across the country at elementary, middle or high school, uh, just with the trends that they see on social media. I mean, last year we had those devious slicks that were going on where the kids were doing some great kids were trying to follow some trend, vandalizing bathrooms and stealing soap. And, um, and then secondly, with that, with those interactions is of uh, seeing an extreme lack of, of empathy, uh, where it's, it's almost, students have lost the ability to relate to others. Um, and we have to be a lot more intentional now and really focus a huge part of our day in our social emotional learning for students, because it, it, it's not something that's naturally taught, not something that's naturally picked up. Um, so more extreme behaviors and also just that, uh, you know, lack of realizing, wow, this is impacting another human. And, and Eric, to dive into, I just want to dive a little bit deeper into the nuance of what you described there. So you mentioned the following of the trends. And, and you know, look, we're, we're on Twitter right now having this conversation. I don't think any of us have a horse in the race of one social media app to another. You know, when you talk about the vandalization of the bathrooms and when you talk about some of the activities, some of the, quote, best kids, the most well-behaved kids from the past that we didn't see engaging in these behaviors before is there a trend in terms of which channels which social media channels they're being driven by i mean i've heard a lot that oh. tiktok drives a big piece of it because since it's such a visual platform it's such an easy thing to be able to look at watch and then follow i mean is there is there anything that that you all have seen in your school where it's okay this is the one in particular or the two in particular that that's driving this behavior 
A- absolutely. Uh, so a few years ago, before TikTok was a huge trend, it was, it was Snapchat. Just due to the with the bullying uh, back and forth with individual students, as you were t- speaking to earlier about mm-hmm. uh, how a kid could slander another kid because they have, they'd have private chat groups where they would. Uh, make fun of a certain student that student wouldn't be involved to be able to defend themselves mm-hmm. and they would you know be spreading through the school through snapchat and that was really in the middle school early high school um tiktok is huge uh middle school high school and truthfully the most dangerous that i've seen this year in elementary because a lot of the parents the students don't have social media at a young age but most children from the age of three years old and up have access to YouTube. Uh, so this year I've learned the dangers of YouTube and, and unrestricted YouTube for, for children. So, um, yeah, that, I would say that would be the three just kind of going from youth YouTube up to TikTok to low middle to Snapchat, higher middle and high. Wow. So, so, so obviously an interesting topic and one we can dive into more as we get two more answers, because, you know, I'm so curious how, how do administrators stay on top of the trends that you're seeing that are popping up? Because it's, you, you got a fear for, Oh my God, this is the hottest thing that's now happening. And hottest is obviously probably the wrong term for it, but the, but the one that is catching on the most that we're seeing happen in other schools or we're watching trending right on the, on the for you pages or the explore pages. Um, so, so getting in front of it, you know, you, you start to hear that vandalization of bathrooms. You use that as an example before, is becoming a trend. It's almost like, all right, well, we have to have administrators or security or someone standing outside of our bathrooms because that's what, or even inside our bathrooms because that's what we're seeing the trends being. How do we, how do we, how do we stop that from happening? Um, Christina, what are you seeing behavior-wise? Well, and I think not to use the same term over and over again, it's all really connected, right? So if our kids are connected to our schools um, and we're really tuned into what's going on, um, then these behaviors aren't going to be such an issue. And so for me, I think that with the lack of connectedness, I was seeing a, a huge rise in loneliness um, and apathy and not, go- and, and not reaching goals um, at the same level that they were reaching goals before and not understanding why they were not able to do that. Um, and so really finding ways to help students connect the how they were feeling with how they were progressing um, was really important for them to understand that, you know, you're not feeling connected um, and how that was affecting how they were achieving, um, which took a lot of work and a lot of time and a lot of patience. Um, You know, Eric talked a little bit about um, empathy. Um, We didn't see that so much because our kids were a little bit older, so we didn't have that same effect, but um, it was more the apathy and, and being so, saddened by the fact that they were not achieving at the same levels that they were achieving before. And I I mean, our progress, for example, I mean, we went from six to seven credits per student um, school-wide down to 3.89 on average in a year. I mean, that's really, really significant. Wow. Wow. So, so, all right, we've got, we've got two examples of extreme and I'm being broad here, but, but extreme behavior changes that we're seeing. Um, And, you know, again, these are things that anecdotally, right. I'm seeing in schools when I'm going school to school and our directors who are living in schools are seeing pretty consistently, but to to talk with other educators and to hear a lot of the same things going on, it's not surprising to me, 
but it, it's validating. And at the same time, it's a little bit scary, right? We're going to, we're obviously going to circle around and talk about solutions and some of the things that we're seeing that are working related to some of the negative trends that we're seeing. But Dr. Karen, on your end, behaviorally, what are you seeing? Well, I think those are both really good examples I can certainly piggyback on. But one of the things that is that I'm seeing more in my work um, is there's there's the neurological impact of the the lack of connectedness, the um, the ability to you know do all the things that Eric was saying with just the, the way that we're that kids are interacting socially is is a lot different, and then also the the fact that there are a lot of things that offer kids immediate gratification and so they're not necessarily used to doing things that cause you to be um you know feel a little bit bored or not immediately stimulated and so the response when you have to do something like read or do an assignment that requires you to plan ahead and, you know, turn off all of your devices and focus on one thing, it feels very boring, because we don't have kids don't have a tolerance for that. And then over time, they're, they're not experiencing success. So they're not feeling as good about showing up to school. Um, they're, again, they're not having those experiences with with peers, because they're not engaging as often. So I think just the neurological impact. And again, I do think it comes back to resilience and intrinsic motivation and some of the specific behaviors that would come out of that are just, you know, refusing, not wanting to do work, um, avoiding work when you know that it's something that you need to do. And so I'm seeing this a lot with, with the parents where they're having a hard time getting kids a, um, wanting, you know, helping kids get through homework, helping them get out the door in the morning, or even just um, you know, wanting to go to school. Um, school refusal is, is a huge thing as well. And, and it does come back to a lot of the self-regulation and the confidence and the resilience and, and just the connectedness. Yeah. We, the, the school that I was at that I mentioned earlier, that one of the behaviors that the principal witnessed that day was this is elementary school. So she said she, she's seen this in the high school level, but never in the elementary level, that there was just a student walking around the school who refused to go into a classroom. So they were walking around with the student. Eventually they got them to go into a classroom. But just, you know, school refusal can come in many different formats. It can come in the format of not showing up. But like the mere fact that someone socially is coming in and at that age is is feeling a certain way where pacing around the hallways seems to be more appropriate to them than actually going into their classes. It's, it's, it's mind boggling in a way. And at the same time, it's also not surprising because of, you know, what we've all been through for the last three years and a lot of the factors that you all brought up on this call. Um, and I, and what you brought up with the many things going on at once and the, the difference of that versus being bored, you know, it's, it's really incredible when you think about when we were younger, the concept of boredom, was the motivating factor that then got us to be creative and find things to do, right? And so you take away the boredom and you take away, you know, the, the okay, what do I do now? Blank slate, what am I going to create for myself? And you just give a lot of options in front of someone. That takes away that brain functionality of, hey, I'm going to kind of look or see what's around me and how can I put things together and start to create these worlds, so to speak, of my own. 
um, where where I'm using things like my executive functioning to to create that. It's it's it, the, the development's not there. You we had a um, our our chief medical officer is a name a guy named Dr. Pleener, and he was telling me that his his son who's I think he was eight years old now he might have just turned eight, and his son was talking about YouTube and and he asked Dad when you were younger what what different stations did you watch? What different shows did you go back and forth on, on YouTube? And he had to explain to him that, you know, there was no VCR back then, or the VCR was just coming out, but there was no DVR. And he explained like the show Dallas back in the day and how Dallas was on at like eight o'clock on a Friday night. And it was appointment TV and you waited for that show to come on. And if it didn't come on and you, or you missed it, you had to wait for the whole next week to go by and hope that they ran it again on whatever station, I forget which, uh, which I think it was on ABC at the time. Um, you had to wait for it to come back on. It wasn't just on demand at your fingertips that you can get it at any point you want. And you could go back and forth if you were bored one show to another show. Like you lived for that time period to watch it with a certain group of people and then to be able to discuss it afterwards, which created a social connection in and of itself. So it's, it's fascinating to think about the factors that have changed in such a short period of time it sounds so much of, of it being technology based and then certainly how the pandemic impacted us and our ability to connect, which almost created a disconnect on top of disconnects that were already happening. So it was a perfect storm in a negative way. Right. It, and, and we're certainly going to talk about the positives that that have come from that because of the skill sets that we now have to turn around and start building and teaching in schools, you know, it, it begs the question and, and any of you can, can jump in here instead of going in order in order again. My, my guess would be we see this in schools and I don't know that there is a right answer, but I'm curious what you all have come across because so much of what we're describing and what we're discussing here pertains to children being at home and in school at home and in school with these devices that they have. Where is that fine line in that? Do you have parents who are coming up to you either in schools or in the programs you have saying, this is wrong that my child is acting this way, fix it. How can you help it? Or do you see parents taking roles and responsibilities saying, this is on us. We need to get better at this. Do you have tools and resources that we can use to help? Like, where is that, you know, and, and I know we're painting with a broad brush and asking that question, but what have you seen with the trends with parents as it pertains to their active participation in some of the challenges that we're facing because of the, how these external factors have changed? Well, I can talk. Can you hear me? Yep. Okay. Um, so interestingly enough, so my school, I, I, I have non-traditional, I also have virtual academy. And there's a couple of things that um, I want to point out. One is we have an awesome opportunity to change the way we approached students at their new needs level and everything that was going on as we re-entered education. And we really didn't do that. So we came back, we started to address all of these needs and looking at mental health specifically um, and say, okay, this is, we're going to be different. We, we know better now. And then we went back to the old ways, which didn't help anybody. Um, and I'm in a very unique situation. So because I have virtual academy and I had this non-traditional program, I have so many families reaching out saying it wasn't working back then. It's definitely not working now after the pandemic. And how can you help? And now I'm seeing all of these kids being successful. So for me, it's very promising because I have this access and this opportunity that is different and not what we had before. 
And we wouldn't have had that before if it had not been for COVID. So in a way, I'm almost grateful for COVID because mm -hmm. it wasn't COVID that created all of these needs, yet it's these external influences, right? So I have kids in my virtual academy, whether or not they were immune compromised or they had anxiety or they just needed to be home or they needed a smaller environment or whatever the reason is, they're being vastly successful. And so um, I see those parents actively looking for that. And then for my, even my students in my non-traditional program who, um, for whatever reason they were in that non-traditional program, I, I think that they were looking to us like, what are you doing different? Because mm -hmm. so many things still are the same. Mm -hmm. um, and that's very frustrating. And holistically, we haven't done enough to address those needs. And that I, I'm not really sure where to go from there. Um, complete, you know, I know where I'm going and I know where small pockets of us are going, but I just really feel like we missed the boat. So, so that second piece that you described there, I want to just hone in on that a little bit more. So you're saying that parents are, are noticing the difference and proactively going to you and saying, Hey, schools, Hey, programs, what are you doing differently because of this? Definitely. Yes. Yes. I mean, I, we went from 100 students, we're up to 157 students now, and that number continues to rise. Uh, and it wasn't because hybrid into um, virtual. Mm -hmm. It was because they knew that their kids needed something different. And same with their non-traditional programming. Yep. Yep. Now, do you think you think that you're getting that question more than a, quote, traditional school because of what your program is about? So parents are bringing their kids to you because they want a different type of programming and in wanting a different type of program, they're saying to you, what are you doing differently than what would be happening in traditional school or, or, or is it, and, and I'm sure we'll hear from Eric and Karen is, you know, it, it, do, where do you think the genesis of their question is coming from? Or is it just concerned parents and they just want answers? Well, I think it's twofold, right? I think one, I am getting those um, questions because innately of who I am. Mm -hmm. um, but then being part of the traditional programming as well in my district, parents by and large are coming in saying something is not working and how can you help us? Please provide us other options. Mm -hmm. um, and mental health in general is something, one, that we've normalized, thankfully, mm -hmm. in a way, where we're, or we're normalizing. Right. So more people are talking about it. And how are we supporting that in schools? And we really haven't done that much different, but we're getting to that point. And where we can help, and especially as it relates to external factors, is in non-traditional programs, in virtual programs, and things outside the traditional. Because we just don't have that kind of wiggle room because we didn't do what we needed to do when we came back from hybrid Yep. you know, whatever from COVID. Yep. I think this is music to Evan's ears. who's silently listening as you talk about the need to change from the way that we traditionally did things to a more engaging way, whether you put that in the bucket of social emotional learning, or you put that in the bucket of education generally, and how do you deliver education with a social emotional twist, regardless of what the topic or the subject area is. So, you know, I'll ask the same question to Karen and, and to Eric where are you seeing parents falling in the equation here? Is it, is it adversarial where they're pointing fingers or is it more collegial where they're saying, Hey, we're at a loss right now. We need your help. What can we do here? I, I can speak to that a little bit. And it really depends on the situation. Um, I, I think as, a, as in most, what I've found are parents willing to take some help and wanting to know. And I'll say when we're having the, the issues with the devious licks, I was very transparent 
Um, so I have a, I have a school YouTube channel. I, I do a YouTube video every week that goes to my, all my stakeholders in my school, the students, the parents and everything. So I, where a lot of schools were trying to hide all the things going on in school, I was, I was very blunt and honest, uh, with, and just transparent with the, the community. And like, here's what we're dealing with. It's not just here. We're just the ones putting it out there. And it, it actually got picked up by, uh, news stations in four, four, four local States, my video, wow. And it, and it made a difference. And, and, and parents were like, wow, we we heard some of this going on. We didn't realize it was hitting at home. I was like, yes, it's here. So I, I would say most of the parents were very thankful and like, hey, what can? how can we get ahead of this so we know what our kids are doing, what are our kids watching? Because a lot of parents aren't aware. You know, there, there's a lot of good kids that haven't been in trouble in traditional ways, as, as you were talking about earlier. Um, so I would say mostly very supportive Um in some areas, very adversarial uh, because it's really hard when we're dealing with cyberbullying uh, because it's kind of a gray area with schools. It's, it didn't happen in school. Uh, it happened on social media on the weekend. Uh, so parents are like, you need to do something about this. And, it, and it's, it's a tricky thing because like, I, I don't have access unless it, it's brought into my school in some way. Um, so a lot of times I have adversarial in that way. But really, I would say more support from the, the greater well, community. I think, I think you doing your own you know, content on that is, is, is commendable and something that, you know, outside of quote, traditional school curriculum is, is something that, you know, you're giving a tool for parents to be able to tune into and to, and to watch. So even if you have an adversarial situation, you can say, we're trying things differently because here's how I'm putting the content out there from what I'm seeing. So I think that's, that's huge. And then I was actually going to bring it up when you brought up social media on the last question, but you know, you, you, you talked a little bit about policing a little bit in a way, and it's, it's obviously a tragedy that I'm going to bring up right now when I say it, but there's a, there's a family down in Florida. We're doing this whole campaign this year uh, for May's mental health awareness month called lifesavers. And it's about families of uh, who've lost loved ones to suicide being more open about uh, what their, what their children have faced. And in a, in a way that they're being open for the purposes of attempting to prevent these things from happening in the future, right? Because we've heard so much of the the contagion effect and when you're out there and you're too public about it, to, to, well, let's flip that. Let's let's make it something that we're comfortable talking about so shame goes away. And in talking about it, talk about it away through saying the reason why we're opening up and we're talking about it is because we want this information to be out there to prevent it from happening in the future, and so the, I gave that background to dive a little bit deeper into the social media aspects of one of the young uh, girls, young women that we lost. She was, she was, you know, only 16 years old is, you know, you think of the nuances, right? That's why I asked you the question, Eric, earlier of which social channels and you gave a great response of the differences between the YouTubes versus the um, Snapchats versus versus the TikToks and, and what have you in terms of picking up on trends. But this particular one, and this is in the police report because it was handed to me because I, I, I had to be, I had to see it before sharing their story, is that the group of girls that this young young girl was was friends with went into and, and I don't use Snapchat myself, so I may be using the wrong terminology here, but they went into a private Snapchat group and they had a picture of her and over her they wrote, You're canceled, right? And so she wasn't invited to the group. She didn't see that, but I guess friends that were in the group told her verbally that it was happening and how that now contributed to the overall. And 
in the concept of cyberbullying, you've got the defense coming from the girls who are part of that group. Well, it was private and it was never meant to get to her. But then you also get the, well, where's that fine line between you're still doing something online, even if it's in a private group that can be shown on a phone to someone, can be relayed verbally to someone that it's happening. There's all these factors of things that we never grew up with, with, you know, uh, different different uh, security mechanisms that are in place that allow things to be pu- public, allow things to be private. And what are people putting out there and thinking it's OK because, well, we don't think so until he's going to see it. So it's not that big deal. Meanwhile, it makes their way back to them. And, and look, we're all human beings. We can all relate to that. We grew up something mean was said to us before there was social media it sticks with us it's like that seed that gets planted inside of us and even if it wasn't a big deal at the time when it happened or didn't feel like a big deal it shakes us it shakes us at our core because it doesn't feel good to be talked about it doesn't be feel good for names to be called for us it doesn't feel good to be left out of things and that's what kids are getting exposed to more and more uh dr karen on your end from a from a uh interaction with parents perspective what are you saying So I interact with professionals from all over the place, all over the U.S., but I also have some people from other countries as well. And I would say that I, I mean, I have seen things all over the board. Um, And and then I would say that I've seen that in various school situations, private schools, charter schools, public schools, homeschool, unschool, you know, non-traditional schools. So, I, I mean, I've seen people be both very successful and um, and do very poorly in in all the situations. So I don't I don't know that it's necessarily always about the particular setup of the school. Mm-hmm. It's more about are the right factors in place to support the kids, and, and that's obviously situation specific. Um, I think what the general theme that I've seen with parents is just that they need accurate information. Kids are getting all of this information from TikTok and online and media, but so are the parents. And I think that parents are just confused about how they can be, how they can support their kids and how they can set boundaries around these things. And there's a lot of, you know, like the polarization and the scare tactics from both sides of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And I just, I think they just don't know what to do and they need direction. And I, I do think, you know, as a parent myself, too, I, I know that the, the schools are struggling, especially in the public schools, with resources and support for all of these things. And so it's just a matter of people getting accurate information and having direction, but also having the resources to do it. So that's really the main thing is that people are just kind of like, what do I do? And, and honestly, the professionals are exposed to all these things and they're confused as well. And, and everybody's just trying to figure out who do I listen to yeah, and, and how do I use that to support these kids? You, would, you know, the challenge is, you know, I, I know you mentioned you work with professionals around, around the country, around the world. And then, you know, we had Eric and Christina gave, you know, examples of it's a little bit of both with parents of, you know, being adversarial in some cases, being collaborative and saying, you can help us, you know, give us the tools in other cases. I'll tell you what's frustrating because we see it all the time is you can mandate an assembly for students. You could mandate a professional development for teachers. It's very hard to mandate something for parents, even when they're saying it's an issue, even when we know that it's an issue for them. You do these, you know, after school 
uh, town hall meetings. You, you, you try to dress them up with, you, you give out, you know, little finger foods or, you know, you, you have a impressive speaker come and you give their credentials and you get 30 parents show up, right? You get 25 parents show up. And so the, the way in which we can engage parents, I, I've seen better examples of parents going, you know, and, and watching the virtual option when the presenter is there in person. And so, okay, that 30 or 25 gets up to 50 or 60, but you're still, it's peanuts compared to the number of parents that are in the school. So, you know, I, I think, Eric, you were bringing it up with your own content piece that you're doing. You know, how do we get creative in getting things into the hands of the parents? So one, they see the work that we are doing. And two, they actually are engaging with that work. <laughs> and they're, they're picking up on the tools and the resources that we're providing. Because if we're struggling, you know, Karen, you were just talking about it, and, and struggles maybe the wrong word. We're 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 finding our ways around the obstacles of these new challenges that are that are coming our way. Well, we know that the parents are having to find their way through those obstacles too, and sometimes the parents are engaging in some of the very same behaviors on on media and social media that that we're seeing with the kids, right? So that that makes things a little bit challenging. But also that represents an opportunity because it's, hey, you see the way these channels work. Let's talk about the healthiest ways to engage with them. And so that's for you, but also for your kids as well. So, so you know, I, I guess that switches this, this part of the conversation over to now some of the solutions that we're seeing. And, I, you know, Christina, with you being the happy principal, you, you, you've, no matter which direction I tried to steer the first half of the conversation in terms of us bringing up some of those obstacles that we're all facing, it seems to be you 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 have a affinity for it. This is a good thing. Wanting to talk about a lot of the positives that are coming out of the challenges we're facing. So maybe this is where you can shed light and start us off in the conversation. But you know, given what I just shared there and how we want to engage parents, we want to be able to provide more resources. We want to get things in front of them. So you could take this from the angle of this is what we do with the students. And this is what worked, or this is what we do with the parents, or both. But what have you seen that is working because of the external factors that have changed so much and these new challenges that are in front of us? Yeah, I, I do seem to find the silver lining in things. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, but I'm also a realist. Um, and I think, though, that um, the reality is really welcoming the, our families in and, and finding out what it is that they need. You know, um, Eric talked a little bit about it, you know, as well. Like sometimes we don't even know what we need as parents. I'm, so I'm, I'm a co-mom of 10. Um, I've seen so many different things. Um, our youngest, um, who's 15, um, he's just starting to get reconnected to school. But I didn't even know what he needed. We ended up having to start him at a new school. Um, again, youngest of 10, different school, a different high school than everybody else went to. Um, and that was a hard decision. But we also recognized that the school that he was going to go to was not the right school, that they were not putting mental health first uh, and that he needed something different. So we had the uh, understanding of that's what we needed. If we had stayed there, there was nothing that that school could have done for us and, and or for him. Um, he was being bullied. He um, did not have the connection um, with other students. Uh, so we had to take that onus in our own hands. Um, but, you know, we're, me and my wife are both educators. Um, so 
you know, we have a step up uh, in that, in that, that we're able to recognize that. I think that just being really open and honest with parents um, and, and listening to them and then, you know, just trying to partner with them and it's not easy. Um, and then offering opportunities. So a lot of times we say, we bring them to the table, we listen to them, but we're not doing anything different. Um, and then just really trying to think outside the box as much as, the, as, much as we can. Um, you know, one of the things I think that has changed for me as a educator, uh, and we go back to social media, is using social media to engage parents. Like I, I think of um, portfolio conferences or our student-led portfolio conferences. Um, we were always dung from the district point of view that we didn't have people coming out to those conferences in, in attendance. When we started then taping and having our community members um, facilitate with our students those conferences and then sending them to, to the parents and when the parents responded to the email or viewed the video, counting that as parent engagement, uh, it ch dramatically changed the perspective of our families. One, they were like, wow, they're really trying to engage us. Two, gave the kids the opportunity to say our, our parents can be, our families can be engaged in that way. Um, and it just made everybody feel good. Uh, I know I just like kind of talked in circles and did like, but it's, 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 it's not easy. Um, but it's, it's really just thinking outside the box, I guess, and, and being open and honest. Like it's, there's so many different things to take into consideration um, and, and just giving everybody some grace. No, it's great. Listen, I mean, the X and O's of the execution, even if it's a generalized statement at the beginning of work with and then the how the work we work with, that's that's where the, the sausage is made and where we have to figure out how it happens, right? So I, I appreciate you sharing the intricacies of, of the X and O's of how you do them. For Eric and Karen, what, what have you seen that has been working? Well... I, I think the community engagement aspect is really important. And I think for the people who are in the leadership positions, the way that you take care of the kids is you take care of the people who are taking care of the kids. So if you're thinking about that from a, a leadership perspective, you have you know the teachers and the people who are working directly with the kids, and then you have the parents. So obviously figuring out ways to engage the community is one aspect, but then if, if I could talk really about the the teachers and what the teachers need and, and the benefits of technology. I've been spending a lot of time lately connecting with people in the ed tech space. And the fact that a lot of the curricular materials are digital now, that gives us a lot of opportunities to make, make updates to some of the materials, offer features and functionality that we were never able to do before. Um, you know, we can offer things virtually. We can we don't have to, you know, sit there and laminate for hours and, you know, be be using print materials. There's there's aspects that we can use for for digital tools that can be shared with parents and students and customized. So there's a lot of functionality that we can access now that we weren't able to do. And, you know, again, as I'm talking to people at a lot of these these companies, there are people who are addressing the tech side of things, but then there's a lot of people who are transitioning over that have a teaching background that are making sure that these technologies are safe and effective and are engaging to kids and actually helping them learn, as opposed to some of these other devices and tools that aren't as, a, aren't as safe for kids to use. So I am optimistic that 
while there are some aspects of technology that have been harmful, that there are a lot of people who are getting into the tech space that do have a background in education and, you know, understand how kids learn and that are having a positive impact. And then I think that that is going to, from a standpoint of, of taking care of the teachers, they need materials and they need resources in order to be able to do their jobs effectively so they can think about engaging with their students and engaging with the community. That's great. And that's, you know, that's what Evan's platform with Beluga, why we think so highly of it. I, I kind of, you know, he, he gets mad at me um, for fluffing him, I guess, in this way of like propping up his, his, his company. But, you know, it, 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 it it reminds me of almost like a mix in a good way that the positive factors of what Instagram, YouTube, and then Peloton have. So it's Peloton because from a, from an educational perspective, it allows the experts, the teachers, the, the folks who have the subject matter experts to post their information, their courses online. It's Instagram in that you're able to follow other teachers, other professionals, other students, even who have similar interests to you. And then it's YouTube because you, you, teachers and students underneath different topic areas can kind of add their own pieces of curriculum on top of um, what an individual creator has done. So it gives kind of this almost ecosystem feel of a lot of people working together, hierarchy involved with it, and, and almost organized chaos in a way where structurally it's set up where, yes, you've got the, the, the folks who put the stake in the ground of, okay, this is the topic area, this is the topic area expert, but you're able to build so many contacts and, and communications off that. You know, when Evan first gave me an example, um, you know, it was, well, okay, you're learning about uh, ancient Rome in your class in, you know, uh, Birmingham, Alabama, what would it be like to learn about ancient Rome from a teacher who teaches schools in Rome? Right. And, and it's incredible when you think about that aspect of being able to almost trade um, resources across barriers um, and learn in different ways than what we traditionally learn, which is this is this teacher spin on it. It's been their spin on it for 20, 30 years over long. They've had tenure at their school and you open up the textbook and they take you through the chapter the way that they did before. And I know this topic that we're talking about here is more SEL and more external factors impacting mental health. But that one example that I was given with ancient Rome is a microcosm of the possibilities that are there in terms of being able to engage students in a, in a, in a broader way. And I didn't mean to make this an infomercial for Beluga. I just, I, you know, as you're talking, Karen, it's making me think of the reason why, you know, we were so enamored with Evan's program and the way in which it, it, it engages folks in a different way. Eric, as, as we come in on an hour here, what are some of the positives that you're seeing in terms of programmatically how we're able to overcome some of these challenges? I think the great thing is, is just giving the options. And as you, you alluded to earlier, and we, we talked to, about the instant gratification, I think Dr. Karen was talking about the students, you know, if we just go, we still need some of those foundations. We're back to in-person of traditional education, but we can't settle for what we've always done. And we have to find the new ways to engage our kids. So they're, they're 
they're used to things at home. That's the instant gratification. Uh, but they need those interpersonal skills and learn how to socialize and, and, and work with others. So uh, I think finding that the perfect balance of having the right tools in the teacher's hands uh, with proper education of parents and how they can interact and having and having things that, um, you know, the students can show their creativity that they're prideful of at home. Uh, and I'll just love some of those examples um, where it's something where it's not just at school, it's not just at home, it's something that transcends and, and really just helps them overall. Uh, and the big thing there is just the communication with the families and, and building that connectivity um, with them. Yeah, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll add on to that piece because um, it, it piggybacks on on the examples that the three of you gave. You know, one of the things that we were we were challenged with when we when we got into the sel space on the curriculum side of things and on the programming side of things was there was no common language to be able to share an answer to the most common question that's asked every single day by every single person even if it is a pleasantry which is how are you and you know the the most common answer that we get is i'm all right i'm okay i'm fine i'm met i'm at which really isn't much of an answer at all and so when we were working with there's a dr stephen porges who um, created, I guess, if you will, I don't know what the right verb is, but polyvagal theory back in the mid-90s, which is the shifts of the nervous system over time and shows how challenging life events accumulate and build in our system. What we started to, to do is, was track that out across a linear plane and use emojis to describe it. And when you first look at those emojis, the emojis are a little more juvenile-ish looking because they're the, the colors of them and the way that they're drawn are meant to, you know, I guess bring in and attract more of a, a student population. The words themselves are not necessarily, you know, young student words in terms of first, second, third grade. It's thriving, gliding, surviving, fluctuating, struggling, sinking. Um, but obviously we get we get familiar with sight words. And I bring up that example because some of the greatest wins that we've seen in terms of bringing that terminology and that scale with the visual into school communities is that through either the schools that do it manually and hand out the posters for it, where the posters go on the desks or they become little, they're kind of made almost the size of a bookmark and they're put on the desks as charts. And some of the younger students point at it when the teachers are coming around or their posters on the walls that explain what the verbiage and what the language stands for in each one of those places, or it's sent home to the, 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 the um, parents for them to have common language, to be able to do the check-ins with the students. Now you take it to the next level. When we introduced the app two years ago that had that common language in there and not every school wanted it, right? This, this is when I say not every school wanted it, the schools that wanted the app, yes, wanted the connection between the teachers and students, and the school professionals had a read-only option to be able to see all the students and the teachers in there. But the additional level that was provided is that parents were able to go in, download the app, and see their individual students' responses. Laugh that will come from this, though probably not audible, is the schools that chose the parents to be on it didn't want the parents to be able to contact the teacher based on the responses that were coming through, but at least to be able to have their read-only option so that now whether a child is coming home and having a conversation with a parent where, and I, I remember this from the time I was a little kid, you know, I have two brothers and my mother continuously saying, I have three boys. They just don't talk to me about anything. That's kind of a, a example of some of the frustrations that we hear parents talk about all the time when it's, I'm asking my kids how they're doing and they're not sharing. 
But when you have a common language that's being used in schools, that's also being used at home, that's understood by everyone from the parents to the students, to the teachers and the administrators. Now you're breaking down barriers of communication. You're allowing openness to be able to happen and there to be a lot more transparency. So as we as we close up here, going just a little bit over the hour, you know, I want to thank all three um, panelists that we had. And I'll, I'll throw it all to you back just as a, a final parting shot. You know, we'll go back to the order that we were in <laughs> to have some kind of way to formally end it. Eric, then Christina, then Dr. Karen. Um, anything you want to leave everyone with just in terms of some kind of uplifting message of either what you took from the session and or some kind of takeaway that 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 maybe you can leave them with that uh, that is, is something that will move us forward, given the challenges we're all facing right now. I would say the biggest thing is just just fill yourself with positive influences around you, uh, whether that's whatever social media that you follow, what media you watch, uh, the people you follow, the people you're around. Um, we need to model uh, as adults and as, as school administrators, uh, be the model for the next generation and surround ourselves with the positive influences that build us up. Awesome. Thank you for that. Christina, you want to jump in? Yeah, I couldn't find the mic there. Um, I would agree with Eric. Um, with external influences, the best part about that is that we do have some control about how we regulate them. Um, so really identify what are your positive uh, influences on your uh, external positive influences and lean into them. And that's one of the best things that we can do is it, you know, connecting with nature? Is it going for a walk? Is it exercise? Is it sleep? Is it um, getting plenty of water? Is it, you know, um, disconnecting from social media? Is it all of those things? Um, we really do have control over a lot of those things. There's plenty of things we don't have control over, you know, as it relates to our traumas and, and, and our genetic um, profile and et cetera. So as it relates to those um, external influences, lean into those and help our students recognize and identify the same. How do they affect them? Um, how um, is that relationship with them? And how can they leverage them in a positive way? Because we do have influence over our mental health and, and we can make a lot of positive um, gains as it relates to how we feel. So from the happy principle there, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the happy um, direction as we, as we, start to log off. Dr. Karen, you want to close out here? Yeah, so I think mine is going to be somewhat of a reiteration of what Eric and Christina said, but I'll close this out with a book recommendation that just popped into my head. There was a book that I read a while back. I think the author is David DeSalvo, and it's called What Makes Your Brain Happy and Why You Should Do the Opposite. So really, it's just all about delaying gratification. And so I think just with the idea of being aware of what influences you, being aware of what makes you feel happy and um, and fulfilled, just having that awareness of what you're doing and what you're choosing to do on a daily basis to, you know, like get that immediate gratification versus the long-term gratification. I like that. You, you threw me for a curveball there. Cause as you were giving the book, Rick, <laughs> you know, it shows you how to be happy. Right. And now the, the, I mean, it's right, right. There's so many studies out there about, you know, the child who's got the cookie in front of them. And if they're willing to wait 10 minutes 
you know, they'll get two cookies instead. And, you know, what that means in terms of long-term outcomes when they have the ability to wait. Right. And so I think that there's a lot to be said there. And, and there's, there's been a lot of books written about that particular topic of delaying the instant gratification and, you know, going more for something that, you know, one is longer term, but also I would say, you know, and, and I haven't read the book that you, that you shared, but, you know, that, that there's a little more intrinsic and, and a little bit real and a little bit how do you impact others more so than what's traditionally making us happy, you know, the way that we think of it, which is things and possessions that we can get. Um, and, and, you know, what, what are some of the longer term and, and real um, and concrete things that, that transcend anything that has any type of monetary value to it? So, so I really appreciate that recommendation. And, and again, want to say thank you to the three of you for, for being a part of this. You know, we, we streamlined this process this year. Uh, Evans, I think he's only got me on three of them for this, uh, for this year. So this is my number two of three. And then I come in towards the, the end of the end of the month as well. But I like the way that these have run. I like that, um, you know, we, we get to record these and then they live in this library that Beluga has moving forward. And, uh, and, you know, you all dedicating your time and donating your time. Don't want you to think it's just for the folks who are looking at the different profiles here on here. This is when it's made available on on demand. It's something that now teachers and students and folks who are in the school population can continue to use from an ongoing basis. And, 